This evening I'd like to talk about insight. We've heard a lot of stories about great people who have great insights. Or sometimes we hear the stories of the ways in which great insights make great people. We've heard the stories of the way that the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and suddenly got it. And we hear other stories about the ways in which people get it. This it is a very charged word. Sometimes it's not gone into great detail what it, I- what it is that they actually got. But certainly whatever they got was a very transforming, awakening experience. We talk a great deal about insight. We encourage you to develop insight. Sometimes I think this leaves some people very puzzled. What does an insight look like? How do you know if you've had one? (laughs) I mean, if we asked you to report your insights today, some of you may find yourself feeling a little embarrassed. You know, what am I supposed to produce? Um, Sometimes we're not sure of how we're supposed to get these insights and really even not sure always of what kind of insights are the right insights to have. So anyway, it seems a worthy thing to talk about. This practice is called a Vipassana practice or a practice of insight meditation the first thing that we should and need to acknowledge, of course, is that we cannot practice insight. Uh, Another thing that we need to acknowledge, I think is helpful to acknowledge, is that practice does not necessarily produce insight. That there are other factors necessary for the development of insight other than sitting on our behinds. But this practice is actually a vehicle for insight. It is actually a vehicle for understanding. Now, when we come into a retreat, of course, we are often cautioned not to have too many expectations. Which on one level is very true. It is helpful not to have too many expectations, too many goals about what you should be experiencing, what should be happening. But at the same time, it is very natural to acknowledge that we do expect something of this practice, that there is a way, a quality of vision that is actually really important to developing this practice. It is necessary to have vision, a sense of aspiration, a sense of reaching, a sense of inquiry, a sense of opening 
or looking into what is possible for us. This is all very necessary, otherwise meditation simply becomes too too passive, too lethargic, too waiting around for something to happen. Most people do expect changes to come about through meditation, inner change and outer change. We do not come here in order to stay the same. No one ever hopes to leave a retreat exactly the same as the way that they walked in. What would be the point after all? We would be better off on the beach. (laughs) But we do expect changes. We expect or hope that there will come about a movement from confusion to to clarity, from, from disharmony to harmony, from separation to a greater sense of connectedness, from, from alienation inwardly to a greater acceptance and understanding. And we hope too that some way, in some way that this practice will reveal to us our own possibilities, will offer us a means to awaken to who we truly are what is genuine, what is authentic. And it seems very clear that in bringing about these changes, or in these changes that take to take place, that insight is an important key. That developing understanding is an essential key. And this is true. Understanding what is. Now, all of us have had enough life experience and also enough disillusionment to really and deeply know that outer change is not sufficient to bring about the freedom and the peace and the meaning, sense of meaning that we seek for in our lives. That to discover those things, we do need to in some way turn our attention more deeply to the present moment, to ourselves, to deepen an insight, to bring about transformation. So what I would like to look at in the talk this evening are different areas of insight. Although I do not want to create artificial divisions or hierarchies, I would say that there are three areas of insight which this practice actually is concerned with. One of those areas is the area of personal insight. Understanding who we are in this moment. Understanding what moves us. Understanding what limits us. Understanding what opens us. Understanding the ways in which we may create the causes and conditions for suffering or for limitation in our own being. Understanding the movements within ourselves which, which bring the past into the present, which superimpose the past onto the present. Understanding the patterns of conditioning that make us who we believe ourselves to be in this moment. This area of personal insight is 
important. Another area of insight is really not to do so much with me as an individual, you know, who I am, what makes me up as a person, who I am as a person, but rather understanding the more universal characteristics that all share, all feature in our experience. The characteristics of unsatisfactoriness and its causes, the characteristics of change, of impermanence, the characteristics of no self, of the emptiness of the center. Now this area of insight is something which touches all of us, which touches all, all beings, all aspects of existence. This too the meditation is concerned with. The purpose, the purpose of insight is very clear. The purpose of insight is transformation, both inwardly and outwardly. The purpose of insight is to free us of pain, to bring about the end of discontent, to bring about the end of suffering, to bring about the end of conflict, to open our hearts and to open our minds to deeper levels of love, of compassion, to understand ourselves is to accept ourselves. And acceptance is a basis of transformation. To understand the characteristics of existence, suffering and its cause, impermanence, no self, those are insights which also bring transformation. They bring to an end defensiveness and aggression in our lives. They help to bring to an end fear and clinging. Through those insights, we are offered a glimpse, perhaps just a glimpse, of the profound freedom that is available to us when we are no longer ensnared by grasping. Perhaps we can conceive of what it would be like for us to live without fear, to live without defensiveness, to live without anxiety. Perhaps we have a glimpse of what it would mean in our lives to live with a fullness of love, of compassion, to see an end of separation. These two areas of insight are very intrinsic to this practice, are highlighted again and again within our own experience. We are asked to see, we are asked to understand, we are asked to be awake to what this moment is actually revealing to us. There is another area of insight which I would say is the heart of this practice, the essence of this teaching. And this is perhaps we might use the word mystical insight. Awakening to truth, to reality. Awakening to the unconditioned, to that which is not born and which is not subject to death. 
to the unconditioned which has no beginning and which has no ending, which has nothing to do with time or with place, awakening to understanding who we truly are. Awakening to understanding the unconditioned, which is the essence of all phenomena, all life, and dependent on none of it. And this insight is is referred to as liberating insight. Now the process of meditation, the practice of meditation, is one way, it is certainly not the only way, But it is one way of entering the path of insight. Simply because through this practice, through cultivating attention, through cultivating sensitivity, we nurture within ourselves an environment which lends itself to insight. A quality of receptivity in which we can really be touched by the moment in which there's an immediacy of seeing, a directness of seeing through which understanding comes. Meditation can be described as a way of cultivating an environment which is friendly to insight, available to insight. When we sit, we meet ourselves. When we walk, we meet ourselves. When we sit and we walk, we meet the present moment. And our attention actually allows us to be aware of the quality of that meeting. And actually all that we need for transformation does lie within that meeting. We have life, we have awareness, we have openness, we have inquiry, we have a mind, a body, we have a world around us. This is all that we actually need for transformation. We need no more. Now, I would like to come back to this area of personal insight. Now, there is a certain, uh, perhaps, school, we might say, a spiritual school of thought which looks down a little bit on personal insight in somewhat of a condescending way. And says, really, you know, that this is something you should reserve for your therapist or you should reserve for your work outside of retreats and that it's not appropriate necessarily to be involved so much in personal insight in a retreat and environment. Well, I mean, personally, this is just a personal opinion, of course, but I think this school of thought is quite nonsense. Um, <laughs> I have actually never met anybody who managed to bypass themselves on the way to enlightenment. (laughs) I mean, if someone could teach us how to do that, they'd be the most famous teacher in the world. But I have never actually met anyone who's able to do that. Now, when we sit, who do we meet? We don't meet our neighbor. You know, we don't meet some stranger, we meet ourselves. This is our first encounter with the present moment, is with ourselves. A deepening in meditation, I would say, is really understanding the path of acceptance. This we need to deepen in meditation, and acceptance begins with ourselves. 
Acceptance is essential for deepening in meditation. Without acceptance, we are alienated always. Without acceptance, we live in a state of tension with actuality. And quite frankly, this is a major challenge for many people. What we see in ourselves and we sit, we are not always so flattered by, we are not always so fond of. We meet in very direct ways the ways in which we judge and negate and reject ourselves. This whole expression of denial that takes place inwardly is something that spills over into every area of our lives. Acceptance is essential ingredient for deepening in meditation. Not a passive acceptance. I'm not talking about passivity here, you know, where we look at ourselves and say, oh, so I'm a greedy person, you know, it's just the way I am, I'm always going to be like that. Oh, so I'm angry, not that kind of level of resignation. But an acceptance is a way of seeing where there is clear comprehension without judgment, where we can make room in our hearts for the whole of our being for all of our being, our imperfections and our strengths, where we can be first with ourselves, without prejudice. Surely we must see that this is the basis for all relationship, for all healing, for all understanding. Now, I think it is important to understand the role of acceptance. When there is a lack of self-acceptance, it colors every area of our lives, our relationships with the world around us, and it colors our relationship to the present moment. When there is not acceptance, what we have is denial. What we have is avoidance. When there is not acceptance, we live in a state of war with ourselves and also with the moment that we're in. When there is not acceptance, one of the most featured words in our inner vocabulary is should. Should. I should be experiencing this. I should be this kind of person. Things should be different. Something else should be happening for me. Should becomes the favorite word. Now the conflict between what is and what we think should be is the conflict that leads us into so much of the modification, the alteration, the manipulation that we go through because this is the offspring of denial, the offspring of rejection. It's the compulsion to endlessly engage in alteration and modification whether it is our inner modification, you know, endlessly trying to become, as Anna was speaking about last night, a better person, a more spiritual person, a more acceptable person, a more likable person. All that kind of modification, it doesn't produce any change, whether it is directed inwardly or whether it is directed outwardly. It does not produce any change. It is a dead end. No change actually comes about truly based upon rejection. 
because there is a lack of understanding. There is a faulty foundation for change. And so that the changes we make are equally faulty. The gap between what is and what should be is really the nature of struggle, isn't it? That is what the nature of struggle is. Every time we find ourselves struggling in our meditation, it is telling us something about the separation we have made between what is and what should be. It is also the gap that creates these swings that we experience in our minds between elation and depression, elation and despair, success and failure. Elation, excitement, feelings of success is when we feel we have achieved some image of what should be. Despair, disappointment, failure is when we feel that that image or that should is unavailable to us. What, of course, that separation does between what is and should be is it makes us um, become really expert at producing goals. Goals which are terribly elusive. We see this in our lives, we see it in our practice. When we are focused upon those goals which have formulated through our shoulds, it becomes increasingly difficult really to attune ourselves to accept what actually is. Our greatest teacher Teachers are very rarely far away from us. They are usually staring us in the face in our practice. Our greatest teachers lie in the present moment, but we often cannot see them because we are so busy reaching for the next moment, which holds the promises of our shoulds, our goals, our expectations. Beginning meditation, in many ways, is really understanding the nature of struggle. Understanding how unnecessary struggle is and how it is created. Beginning meditation, in some ways, is really deeply understanding the conflict that is born of a lack of acceptance. And that is why the beginning of meditation is a very deep lesson in learning the significance of self-acceptance. Because this is the foundation of being able to make room in our hearts for all things, when we can make room in our hearts for ourselves. And in a very real way, I would say almost that the beginning of meditation is the begin- <coughs> that the beginning of acceptance is the beginning of meditation. Now, when we start in this practice, we start with something which is so extraordinarily simple. At times we feel a little suspicious, even, because this practice is so simple. You know, if we added in a little bowing and a few rituals and, you know, a few goals to achieve here, we would probably feel more trusting of this practice, but it's so simple. You know, we say, pay attention. Just be attentive, just be aware of my breath, but 
what's spiritual about that? We think, what is really spiritual about that? You know, I came here looking for a grand spiritual opening, mystical experience. We're asked to pay attention to our breathing. Well, attention is extraordinarily simple. So is suchness. So is awakening. In this great simplicity, we manage to find great difficulty. We manage to find great difficulty. The difficulty is in really attuning ourselves to what is, in being receptive, in truly listening, in learning the lessons that are offered to us. And in the beginning, it seems to involve so much struggle and trying, you know, trying. In America, and I have to say this, I don't want to be insulting, but in America, <laughs> it is actually the only place I ever teach where meditation and work are used sim synonymously as being the same words. Now, I wonder why that is. You know, why are you working at this? kind of work are we actually doing here? If we, work, we feel like we're working because we feel like we're struggling, because we're trying so hard and it feels uphill. Sometimes we feel we make little gains and then sometimes we sadly feel we make big losses after we make the little gains. And it all feels hard, you know, it really, I appreciate, does feel hard in the beginning. It seems to ask so much of us. Now, the reason, of course, is that how it is hard is that essentially I am so desperately threatened by this practice. I am so desperately threatened by this practice. I am asked to let go of everything, for everything to be stripped away, to be naked, to be vulnerable. And we think then I will become no one. I will be nothing. And to I, this obviously sounds like bad news. We think I'm going to lose everything and what might be left is some vast vacuum of nothingness. It is so terribly threatening to I. Which is why, of course, you know, we get this fidgety mind, you know, this kind of antsy mind that's bringing up all these incredibly creative ways not to be present, you know, to be asleep, to be fantasizing, you know, to be constructing, to be imagining, all these ways that we find not to be present. It is a curious paradox that operates within us, that part of us so longs to be awake, so genuinely and so deeply longs to be awake and to be free. And another part of us is saying, I'm not so sure. I'm really not so sure about this. Can you show me some proof that this is a good thing? You know, can we see some evidence, some guarantees that this is really going to be worth it? We find the resistances too, because when we turn our attention inwardly, we don't always find what we want to find. It would be, of course, a great joy in meditation to sit down and turn our attention inwardly and kind of open ourselves to an endless field of bliss and happiness and joy. 
We don't always find what we want to find. And some years ago, a woman came and she said you know, her life was in a terrible state of tension, terrible state of conflict, really unbearable actually. And she said, I really need some meditation to help me find some peace. And so we talked a little, gave some instructions, and she went home and she practiced them. And she came back so angry, so absolutely furious. She said, you know, I did what you said. And I started seeing all these things about my life, about myself. I started seeing all this suffering and the way it's caused. And she said, this is not what I want. I want peace. Now, I think this is true for us, you know, that yes, we do wish for peace. But we need to also treasure the path to peace. And the path to peace is understanding. It is not subduing our minds. It is not getting rid of things. It is not becoming perfect. The path to peace is understanding that this is where peace is found. Still, it is interesting, isn't it? We have such a hard time at times in meditation and still here, still sitting there, still walking. Now, what is it? I mean, is this a sort of community of masochists? Or, you know, something actually happening here? Something keeps returning us, doesn't it? And somewhere within us there is a trust, a trust that through this we are learning, we are deepening, we are growing, that this is actually the vehicle for peace. That trust deepens, that trust deepens through our experience. As we sustain this practice, sustain attentiveness, sustain being present, we begin to find some changes. Things that overwhelmed us, thoughts and feelings and images that overwhelmed us a few days ago, somehow we find, well, we can be with this. We can be with this. We can embrace this. Ways in which we found ourselves being victimized a few days ago. Somewhere, in some strange way, the consciousness has opened in a way in which we are no longer a victim, nor are we a master but we are embracing and accommodating. Trust develops too because actually we see the transformation that comes through our own inner resources. That as we pay attention, as we bring sensitivity, as we really look and really see that a whole world, a whole landscape of possibilities opens to us. We don't have to be ensnared by reactions. We don't have to be ensnared by habits. We don't have to be bound to the past. In this very moment, there is a possibility of transformation. Now, through that trust, that begins to develop. There's a great deal of insight that happens. There is a great deal of understanding of the ways in which the conditions for suffering are created 
on a moment-to-moment level, that this is not necessarily something to do with the past. The past is the last moment. We begin to understand the ways in which the conditions for limitation, the conditions for suffering, can be created, and we also understand the ways in which the conditions for freedom, for openness, for sensitivity, for understanding, can also be nurtured in this moment. I do believe one of the greatest gifts of this practice is that it lends to us a sense of immediacy, that we don't necessarily have to work things out. We don't have to go back and analyze our histories We don't have to go back and hassle our mothers and fathers and ask them what they did to us as a child. We don't necessarily have to go back to our classmates and, you know, find the bully who crowded us in the schoolyard. We can, there is an immediacy that comes to us, which embraces the past, which does embrace the past. It doesn't negate the past. It embraces the past. But there's an immediacy where we cease blaming and understand in this moment the possibilities for transformation that are offered to us through our own wakefulness, through our own being present, through our own quality, our willingness to learn in this moment. To me, this is the greatest gift of this practice. It returns to us that which is our heritage, restores to us that which is our heritage. As the practice deepens, of course, there's much more calm, much more calmness. It is not that there is still not varieties within our experience. Certainly there are valleys and there are peaks, but there's a big difference here. When we first come into this practice, we are only interested in the peaks. You know, the good times, the good moments, the good sittings, the highs, the gains. And I think the shift that takes place is that as there's a greater sense of calmness, we really do appreciate the quality of learning and the quality of understanding that is offered to us in the valleys. And we begin to see how those valleys are constructed in our meditation, in our lives. Here there is a wonderful potential for insight, for learning from our own valleys. We see on a moment-to-moment level the effect of holding, whether it's to the pleasant or the unpleasant. We see in the very moment the effect of grasping and clinging, whether it's onto a mental state or a last sitting that the very immediate effect of that is that we have interfered with the unfoldment of this moment and we are conditioned by that which we cling to. We see that immediately. We see the struggle, the conflict, the pain that is created through wanting, through the power of judgment and self-images. But we learn certain lessons here. We learn the lessons of non-resistance. We learn the lessons of non-avoidance. We learn the lessons of the willingness just to stay with what is. Not to be defined by it, to draw no conclusions from it, just to stay with what is. 
That is what openness is. Openness is not some magical revelation. Openness is that willingness to embrace what is with us. There are insights that develop about the causes of suffering and the unnecessary nature of conflict. I think this is very important. To be human is not necessarily to live in conflict. To be human is not necessarily to suffer. We see our relationship to the past, we see our relationship to the present, we see the power of awareness that awareness neutralizes conditioning. All of this we see. These are all insights. They empower us. Insight empowers us in that it shows us that we do not need to work things out, we do not need to negate, we do not need to destroy anything within ourselves or within our past. Insight shows us the ways of acceptance and understanding. Learning these lessons, we deepen in meditation. Now, sometimes the insights that come to us come in different ways. You know, sometimes there are very startling insights into the ways in which we operate. And there are times that there's different depths to those insights. You know, sometimes we see something about, about ourselves and it's so clear. You know, it's like it's shouted at us. This is how I cause suffering. This is how I create conflict for myself. We have some insight into some tendency and we understand it so clearly. And it feels almost magical at times, that insight. But there's a certain unrealistic expectation that comes. That sometimes, that somehow, if we just see something, it's going to dissolve a tendency or it's going to dissolve a pattern. And I think sometimes we get very high over insights. Now, it is true that at times it is possible to see something so clearly that there is no return to that way of creating suffering or conflict, that there is no return to being ensnared by that pattern. Most times that's not true. Most times, on the level of personal insight, seeing is the first step. It is really helpful to uh, exile notions of enlightened retirement that I'm going to see something and that's nicely taken care of, you know, and I don't have to look at that one anymore and that's all fixed up now, you know. It's not who I am anymore. Seeing is the first step. If we wish for freedom, we must walk the path of freedom, live in the spirit of freedom. If we wish for peace, we must treasure the path of peace. Sometimes people leave retreats or even leave a sitting and feel they lose their insights. You know, I lost them somewhere on the way to Boston. Or I lost them in the walking room. You know, I'm back out in the dining room and there's that greed again. What happened to that insight? You know, we think we've lost it. Insights are not lost. Insights are never lost. The real questions sometimes we have to ask ourselves is how much we are actually willing to live in the spirit of what we know to be true. How much we are willing to live in accord with our insights, with our understanding. It, most insights are not new. You know, it's very few new insights. Most things we know, 
We're not already. The more the question is our willingness to live in the spirit of that awakening, to live in the spirit of that truth. The characteristic of insight is that it's only transforming if it is lived. If it is not lived, it is not transforming. Instead, we tend to have like this kind of portfolio of insights. And this is, you know, a sad thing. You know, I have been to reunions of meditators <laughs> that are like reunions of war veterans. You know, where they look back, oh yeah, that retreat in 89 had that fantastic impermanence insight, you know, and in 90 I really saw the nature of anger, and in 91, you know, Anatta was so clear. And you, know, you think, well, you know, what is this all about? Is this about collecting a museum of insights? No. Insight is a spirit in which we live, and we know this to be true. Our lives are free when we live in the spirit of what is true, what we understand to be true. If we do not live in that spirit, our lives express it. Our lives express it to us again and again and again. The practice deepens. The calmness is more accessible to us. A number of changes begin to take place. We find there's less of a personal dimension at times to the practice because we feel less preoccupied. Same thoughts, same feelings. But we see more in them. We find ourselves not long, no longer being so defined by them no longer being so conditioned or swayed by what arises. We find ourselves not dwelling so much, and so we also don't construct so much. We don't construct so many realities for ourselves. We see more into the nature of our own processes, not just the content. And we see much more the way in which our process is the process of another, is the process of life. We see the way in which the movements of our minds and our bodies are the movements of all minds and all bodies and all life. We see the changes. We see impermanence within those processes. We see the ways in which the dissatisfaction is created through not understanding those processes. At times we see the emptiness of a center in any of those processes. There's a much greater sense of interconnectedness that begins to come through, and a greater universality you know, in the way in which we see. And it is not so much me and you anymore, my stuff, your stuff, my mind, your mind. There is a sense of this unfolding nature, which is actually not so personal, which all life shares. Often the insights which come into that are very profound. Sometimes the experience and the insights are not separate. In the moment of seeing, within that seeing, we see change, we see the nature of unsatisfactoriness, we see the nature of grasping, we see the emptiness of the center. And so there's a lot of change in the consciousness. So much of the content is like bubbles, simply like bubbles. 
They rise and they pass and they move through us. And there's nothing to invest in. And letting how to let go is a question that doesn't necessarily arise. There is just letting go. There is just letting go when there is not grasping. That's what letting go is, is not grasping. When there's not grasping, there's letting go. There is this movement of phenomena through us. So much lessening of any sense of separation. In many ways, our heart begins to open through that seeing, through that vision of interconnectedness, through the seeing of that transparency in those bubbles. There's a quality of grace that begins to emerge in this practice, of receptivity, of listening, of such a fine and subtle sense of attunement that, you know, really there is not much call to do anything at all. We are present. Where else do we need to go? We are simply present. There's not a sense of, I have somewhere to reach, I have something to do. We are present in that grace, in that receptivity. That is quality of receptivity, which is so open, so, prof so profound, so present, so receptive, that it is really receptive to being awake, to liberation, to understanding, being touched by that which is not conditioned. This is not a hierarchical process. It is not that first we must understand this and then we must understand that and then finally we will be awake. We are awake. We need to recognize it. We need to acknowledge it to see that which is already with us. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings abide in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.